Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from Nassau County, Jeff. On today's show, we start a new series on the best utility players in Mets history. But first, let's start with this start. After three games, the Mets won them all in Washington. We were told that the Mets were off to a great start. Now it's a few weeks later, and we're hearing the Mets are off to a great start. And they are. They're in first place. But is it just a start, or is it more than that? What's a start, and when does a start become the thing, the season? I guess what we're trying to figure out is what we're seeing over the first two, three weeks. Are the Mets showing us their true selves, not just their best selves? And is this what we're going to be seeing in May and June and July and so forth? And all you can do, I think, is go on sample size. The sample the Mets have given us has been exquisite. So let's say that this is the season we're in, and let's enjoy it as far as we can. After Monday's thrilling win, the locker room was filled with, it's still early, and Max Scherzer even said, April is just April. But these games still count. It's got to mean something. It means after 18 games, which was uh, Monday was the 18th game, you've played one ninth of the season. You won 13 out of your first 18. That's X number of wins you don't have to worry about making up at some other point of the season when the Mets aren't winning 13 of 18 and when the Braves or the Phillies get hot and the Mets aren't. We now have a little bit of a cushion. Hopefully we can avoid the part where we're not hot and we give background. When you look at what this team has done so far, culminating, if we're going to talk about the first ninth of the season in the 18th game in St. Louis, yeah, it means something. This is a team that has not lost more than five times in its first 18 games. A team that looked ready to have a sixth loss pinned on them in what would have been heartbreaking fashion on the road against the team none of us likes. And instead, that scored five runs in the top of the ninth. And yeah, it means something. After that game, I was in a great mood. Going into the ninth inning, I was not in such a great mood. The Mets were losing 2 nothing. The Nets had been eliminated from the NBA playoffs in a sweep. I was questioning the value of sports. And here we are doing a Mets podcast all full of ourselves because the Mets are off to a good start that is part and parcel of a promising season. By the way, have, have any hitters been hit by a pitch since we started? If, if you could only see what Buck is looking toward, he is just not having it. The Mets started great last year and then fell apart. Are there any other precedents for such a great beginning in Mets history? Well, the Mets started okay. At this point last year, they were 9-9. Nine and nine. We know that at some point they got a little momentum going for about 10 games over in June and had a lead that I think peaked around five games while the other teams were scuffling. This start is in the upper tier of starts in Mets history. 13-5 and five after 18 games is one of the four best starts in Mets history. And when you rattle off the other three seasons in that pantheon, you'll understand both why it's promising and why you shouldn't be printing the tickets for the World Series just yet. 1986 and 2015, those teams won 14 of their first 18 games, both famously won 11 games in a row at one point. We know what happened in 1986. 2015, we know what happened. We remember it fondly. We also remember that it wasn't a 1986-style joyride. 
to October, that there was a decline in fortunes, but it wasn't a killer because they had the great start. We also may remember the same exact start we're off to now of 13 and 5 was accomplished in 2018. Do you remember the 2018 World Series? Do you remember the Mets being in it? No. Uh, unfortunately, that team was playing over its head, and I think we probably would have guessed that in 2018, Adrian Gonzalez, not to pick on somebody who had a terrific career. Adrian Gonzalez was at the end of his career and playing first base for the Mets, and I don't think that was part of the plan. No disrespect to Gonzalez, but for some reason, that's, that's the first guy I think of when I think of that great start. And they, they leveled off. They were already leveling off by their 18th game. 12 and 6, 1972, a season racked by injuries. But then 85, a team that won 98 games. 88, a team that won its division. 2006, a team that won its division. And 2007, a team that should have won its division that was eliminated from postseason play uh, on the very last day. So generally speaking, you get off to a very good start like this, you're at least positioning yourself for a very meaningful summer and prospects of the fall. But we're not just looking at numbers. We're looking at the way this team has played. And you got to love the way this team has played. I keep thinking about Starling Marte's run to first it gave the Mets the lead in Arizona last Friday night. That was the extra inning game that had gotten away in the ninth inning that I was mostly sleeping through because Arizona insists on being several hours away. Yeah, that was impressive. I think Marte's brought a new element to the team that we haven't seen in a while with his not just his presence, but he's such a good hitter. He's got power. And he's playing great defense in right field, but his speed, his base running is top notch. I think this is a quality addition to the Mets. You know who he reminds me of? And you'll say you're crazy because he doesn't really look anything like him in terms of body type and build. But it reminds me of Rusty Staub, hmm. 1972, established right fielder, not an MVP in his past or anything like that in either case, but a, a star level player who turned things around and led to a great start in 72. We, we mentioned injuries kind of torpedoed that season and Rusty, you know, broke his hand that year. But this guy is a total professional who plays the game the right way to throw like two wonderful cliches at you at once. But I, I just get so inspired and confident watching this guy play and thinking, oh my God, he's on the Mets. You're right. We don't have a guy like that, or we didn't have a guy like that. We do now, because we got Starling Marte. One thing that fascinated me until Monday night and that beautiful 5-2 to two game, and I guess it still fascinates me because I'm bringing it up here. The Mets only had three saves in their first 17 games and seemed destined to not have a save in their 18th game because the game was about to get away. Three different pitchers accumulated those saves. Edwin Diaz, who we think of as getting all the saves when he's not giving up a home run in Arizona. Trevor May, when Diaz wasn't available on some given day. And Seth Lugo, who kind of picked up uh, after Starling Marte rushed to first base. And again, it's one of those things that I see it happen, and I think to myself, has that happened lately? And you know what? It hadn't happened in 48 years. So hold on to your hat. Let's call this our hat holder. In 1974, the first three saves of the season were recorded by one man who you would immediately think of, Tug McGraw. One guy you might 
think of because he succeeded McGraw as the closer after McGraw was traded to the Phillies the next year, Bob Apodaca. And one guy who I think I could make a buck betting somebody, because you don't think of him as a 1974 Met, you think of him as a 1962 Met, Bob L. Miller, one of the two Bob Millers who was back for a second go-around at the end of his career, and just by the machinations of Yogi Berra's bullpen that year, three different relievers, I don't think we were really calling them closers at that point, each notched a save before anybody came up with a second save. And and just to keep you holding on to your hat, it only happened twice before in Mets history, both times predated saved as an acknowledged statistic universally. I'll just throw the names at you. 1964, Larry Bernarth, Tom Sturdivant, Bill Wakefield, and 1966, Gordy Richardson, Dennis Rybant, and Daryl Sutherland. And remember, the Mets weren't winning a lot of games in those days. Casey Stengel and later West Western didn't really have the need for somebody to close out games. But when it came time, they went a la carte. They did not have a designated closer. Here, one particular closer getting those save opportunities. We had three different guys getting three different saves before anybody. Diaz got a second. So I'm going to let go of my hat now. Bob Miller, you mentioned, wasn't he part of the Bob Miller duo that confused Casey Stengel? Yes. Bob Miller, the one we're talking about, who had a long career in the major leagues, uh, stopped off with the 62 Mets, got traded later on, and had a, you know, a long journeyman, successful type relief pitching career. Came back at the end of 73, not in time for the playoffs, and was still around 74 and became a very important piece of that year's bullpen. And then he said, you know what, I've done this twice now. I think I've been a Met long enough. And he retired. The other guy was Bob Miller. Bob G. Miller, the lefty. His career was ending in 1962. And the the best legend out of all of that, they put them in the same room and players used to have roommates because it was just easier that way. Because if anybody called the hotel and was looking for Bob Miller, you couldn't go wrong with room 248 or wherever they were. But uh, when, when Casey wanted Bob Miller, he would call the bullpen and say, get Nelson up. And somehow they figured out what that meant. We'll be back after this. Hey, Greg, I was thinking about a game from June 84 when the Mets beat the Giants 11 to 6. Keith Homer, Brent Gaff pitched five innings of relief for the win, and Kelvin Chapman hit a grand slam. Kelvin Chapman was out of the majors by 85, but then he changed his name, became a New York City detective, and writes books about his thrilling exploits. Jeff, you're confused. The Mets' second baseman on that marvelous 1984 team was Kelvin Chapman. I think you're thinking of Kevin G. Chapman, the author of the Mike Stoneman thrillers, those gripping works of fiction written in the best tradition of the Harry Bosch novels. Did Mike Stoneman play for the Mets, too? No, dude. Mike Stoneman is a fictional NYPD detective Kevin created. Like Kevin, this guy truly loves the Mets. And like our fondest dreams when the bases are loaded with Mets, just like when Kelvin Chapman was up back in 84, these books are a grand slam. Now I get it. And Mets fans can get the Mike Stoneman series by Kevin G. Chapman on Amazon or at KevinGChapman.com. The ebook version of Righteous Assassin, book one in the series, will be on Amazon.com for just 99 cents in May. Solve the case of your missing Mike Stoneman thriller today. And we're back on National League Town. For our next segment, we want to talk about the best utility players in Mets history by decade. We're going to talk about interesting players and name the best utility player for each of the seven decades of Mets baseball. 
we'll be doing this in seven separate shows. It won't be consecutive. So don't put this on your Google calendar yet. We're going to talk about interesting players and again, name a utility player of the decade. Now, utility player is not a regular player, obviously. It's someone that played multiple positions. And if they were in the lineup, you wondered who wasn't in the lineup. And Greg and I want to thank Jeff Cohn, who spurred our interest in this subject by asking us to talk about Teddy Martinez, who we will discuss when we get to the 70s. But right now we're in the 60s. Greg? Yeah, utility players. Some seasons we have a roster full of utility players, it feels like. And sometimes utility players get a little lost in the shadows of the starters. As you said, sometimes these guys are in the lineup. Sometimes these guys are just are called on in the late innings and deliver. And there's a phrase that has been used, it feels like, since the dawn of time, at least since I've been watching baseball, players who are cursed with versatility, uh, which is the way of saying, well, gosh, you can play so many positions, we'd hate to give you one and tell you it's your job. So, you know, these guys keep a season going, they keep a team going, they can win you a game. Hopefully when we think of them, we remember them doing great things, making up the fabric of a Mets season. So I, you know, I wanted to spend a little time celebrating the Mets 60th anniversary by celebrating these guys. And as you said, seven decades, we are, we have now begun, we're only a few weeks into it, the seventh decade. So we're, we're probably going to be a little provisional in our choice when we get to the 2020s. But when we talk about the 1960s, the beginning of Mets baseball, especially the very beginning of Mets baseball, uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that there's any mystery as to who our main man is. Uh, he is the patron saint of Mets utility players. 1962 to 1964, none other than Rod Keneal. You may know Rod Keneal as Hot Rod. You may know him, if you've really read up on him, as the mole. Because Rod Keneal was one of the players who felt at home, even though he was from the Midwest, felt at home enough in New York to ride the subway and rode it all over town. And his players, his teammates rather, wondered, how does he know the underground so well? He must be some sort of mole. But we, we know he was some sort of hustler. He had been in the Yankee farm system in the 50s, where he had caught the eye of a manager named Casey Stengel. And that helped him a lot, because when the Mets were new and they were taking part in the minor league draft, they picked Rod Keneal. Rod Keneal came to camp in St. Pete with not much of a chance of making the team, it was thought. And he busted through. And he's on the opening day roster. And before you know it, he is playing everywhere. Not pitching and not catching, but playing every other position over time. He's coming off the bench. Here is my favorite Rod Keneal record. It's a record he held for about 40 years. Rod Keneal is inserted as a pinch runner 52 times by Casey Stengel. It's the second most in Mets history. We'll probably save the identity of the guy who broke his record for the decade that he's in. It just kind of tells you the, the kind of tools that Keneal could bring. Like I said, infield, outfield, didn't matter. And if the bases were loaded, he did not mind sticking an elbow out because Casey Stengel in those days would offer $50 if you consented to get hit. Don't get hurt, but if you got yourself hit to produce a run, Rod Keneal said, okay. And in a game that we talked about not long ago, the 13-12 to 12 unicorn score game of 1963, 
the difference in that game, not necessarily the winning run, was Rod Cuneo getting hit for 50 bucks. So this guy could do a little bit of everything. And you know what? You're familiar with Andy Chavez, I'm sure. You're familiar with a catch Andy Chavez made. Can I just tell you, Jeff, about proto Andy Chavez catch that Rod Caneel made in a game against the Cubs in 1964? And can I just ask you to hear Bob Murphy's voice as I read a transcript of his call? Ernie Banks was at bat. Larry Bernard of our volunteer hat guys was pitching a long fly ball. Looked like it was going to be trouble. Shea Stadium. Here's what, what we had. Here's the pitch on the way. A drive in the air to deep center. Keneal, a long way to go, way back, way back against the wall. Oh, what a catch. What a catch. The play of the year. He may get a double play. Ron Hunt has a relay throw to make. Here it comes. Double play. Rod Keneal did that. You know, with a little help from Ron Hunt on the other end of it, echoes, or shall we say foreshadowing, of Andy Chavez. So uh, three seasons as a Met, only a Met. Tried to get back into baseball for a while. Unfortunately, it didn't work out, but a life that went on from his experience as a Met. He was one of the go-to players. Anybody who was writing a book or doing a story on the good old days, Rod Keneal was happy to talk about them. Rod Keneal hung around the Mets as much as he could. There's a great story in, in uh, George Vesey's book about the 69 season that on the night they're celebrating the division clincher over St. Louis, Rod Keneal, of all people, is in the clubhouse. And he's retired a few years at that point. He comes up to Tommy Agee, congratulates him, tells him how proud he is of the Mets, walks away. And just to show how time flies, Jeff, Tommy Agee turned to somebody and said, Excuse me, but who was that? Which is, you know, kind of a sad code, I suppose. But, uh, you know, Rod Keneal kept coming around and, you know, was an important part of you know, what we think of when we think of the original Mets. Uh, unfortunately, passed away in 2004, but I, I think his legacy lives on in some of the other guys we're going to talk about as we go about the Deep Bench series. The original utility player, because he was from 62, played for the Mets 62, 63, 64, and is the National League Town utility player of the 60s. Any other players of interest? I want to tip a cap to two other utility players real quick. Uh, one who played some third base and some outfield, Danny Napoleon, around in 65 and 66. And I don't know that Danny Napoleon was necessarily one of the three great utility players of his time, but you got to love a guy who came up as a rookie April of 65. He gets into his third game ever in San Francisco. He's a pinch hitter late in the game, and he triples, and the Mets go on to win the game. And this is 1965, where there's only 50 wins, and you know darn well, early in the season, that there aren't going to be much more than 50 wins. And why does this game echo down the corridors of time? Because afterwards, when reporters come into the clubhouse to cover the jubilant scene, Casey Stengel, who knows what uh, the media was looking for, shouted in deference to Napoleon, Viva la France! Let's give him a little deep bench love. And who else? Well, we can't leave the 1960s without stopping off in 1969. I think the interesting thing in the context of utility players come 1969 under Gil Hodges is you don't really think about utility players because Gil Hodges didn't think in those terms for the most part because Gil Hodges was a master of the platoon and getting everybody in the lineup. Not so much juggling his personnel, but using the chessboard and knowing when to get guys in the game. And also having to take into account the fact that guys would miss time because of military service commitments in those days, Buddy Harrelson among them. So coming up during that season, 
is a young man named Bobby File, P-F-E-I-L. The P is silent, but his presence was not. Bobby File had a contribution in a couple of big games that year. He shows up in Met Legend as the guy who tells Tom Seaver on July 9th, 1969, watch out for this guy, Jimmy Qualls. I saw him in the minors, and unfortunately, Jimmy Qualls is the guy who broke up Seaver's perfect game. Although Files sort of uh, breaks our desired rule of lots of versatility, infielder, outfielder, at least when he was a Met, he played some second, he played some third. He was literally the fourth outfielder one night when Gil Hodges decided he needed a Willie McCovey shift long before shifts were the norm. And he sent Bobby File from his position in the infield out to play a little left. Cleon Jones became the de facto left center fielder and wound up making a great play on McCovey. Uh, later, File would have a, a big role in ending a bizarre play in San Francisco, tagging out Willie McCovey at third base. But he was in the middle of things. The only thing he wasn't in the middle of was the World Series. He was essentially the 26th man, but his presence was felt in a very interesting way, I think. Bobby File traveled with the team. Gil Hodges got permission for that. He felt bad that he couldn't have him on the roster. Well, in Baltimore, they had a guest, Pat Nixon, a first lady of the United States, came to represent the administration such as it was. And the Secret Service asked, hey, listen, we need a baseball glove in case there's a foul ball or something to protect the first lady. Guess whose glove got into the World Series via the administration's desire to be shown loving baseball? And it was Bobby Files' glove protecting Pat Nixon from any errant foul balls. It always warms my heart to see him at all the reunions. And when we were there for the 50th anniversary of the 69 team in 2019, Bobby File, as much as anybody else, was one of the honored guests. And he lives on. Uh, not only for the silent P, but for the loud presence. So 1969 Mets, lots of platooning going on. A guy like Al Weiss, you really can't call him a utility player. He hits a, he's in the starting lineup and hits a home run to tie the World Series ultimate game, game five. So I got to give the nod here to Bobby File for that season. Once again, tips of the cap to Hot Rod Keneal, to Viva La France, Danny Napoleon, and to Bobby File, and to all the utility players on the Mets in the 1960s. Thank you for filling our deep bench. One thing that's interesting about File is he's memorable. We remember him. I remember him. And he was only a Met for one season, but it was such a great season. Yeah, I think if you're going to be a Met for one season, the season to do it is 1969, or perhaps 2022. And we'll continue this series. We just finished the 60s. We'll talk about the 70s on our next episode. Let's move on, Greg. Anything else we want to talk about? Miguel Cabrera got his 3,000th hit, joined the 3,000 hit club, as they say. And I felt warm all over. I didn't go nuts, but <laughs> nice applause for a guy who I've thought of as one of the really great players of this past generation. And it got me thinking that because Miguel Cabrera plays for the Tigers, I look at him, kind of put him on a pedestal, say, wow, that's a really great player. And when he's come to City Field and a rare interleague appearance, it felt right to applaud him. It still would feel right to applaud him if the Tigers were on our schedule this year. But it got me thinking that if Miguel Cabrera, who came up with the Marlins, had stayed on the Marlins, I probably couldn't stand him because he'd be killing the Mets like he did from 2003 to 2007. So I was thinking about there's 33 players who've had 3,000 hits in their career. All obviously great players. No question about it. 20 of them played against the Mets. 
starting with Stan Musial, who got his 3,000th hit before the Mets came into existence, but he hung around and got what felt like about another 100 hits in 1962 and 63 at the Polo Grounds, all the way to Miguel Cabrera. So what I'd like to do, Jeff, I'm going to run, run through them quickly, but I'm going to ask you. Let's just say you're at the game. You're at Shea Stadium. You're at City Field. Let's say that player X has joined the 3,000 hit club and he's coming in to play the Mets next series. He's introduced. They make a big deal about it. The public address announcer says, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations to this player for joining the 3,000 hit club. But as your reaction, you're going to get up and give an enthusiastic ovation because this is a great player. I don't care that he's playing against the Mets. I'm a citizen of baseball here. Is your reaction, I'll give him some polite applause. Or is your reaction, get on with the game already. I don't want to hear about this guy. So I'm going to start with a, what I think is an easy one. Hank Aaron, 1970. Enthusiastic ovation. Prolonged standing ovation. Okay, that's that's four years before he breaks Babe Ruth's record. But yeah, he's already a legend at that point. This is what they call a gimme. Billy Mays, 1970. Uh, I was still won't have stopped applauding. I'd st- I would have started then and I'd still be applauding. Yes, and he's not even a Met yet, but uh, you know he was he was from New York for his part of his career. I understand it. This one isn't really in the category, but you know we have to acknowledge him because his 3,000th hit was against the Mets. Sadly, there were no more hits to come. But let's just say there there was another visit to Shea Stadium for Roberto Clemente after 1972. Enthusiastic. I, I think it's worth pointing out Roberto Clemente was given a night at Shea Stadium in 1971 because he was such an important part of not only baseball, but such an icon to Puerto Rican fans living in New York, and they wanted to honor him, and the Mets saw nothing wrong with that. Well-deserved. And I think it's also worth pointing out the Mets honored Hank Aaron his last go-round in 74 with the Braves, and the Mets honored Willie Mays twice, not only as a Met in 1973, say goodbye to America, as we all remember. But uh, when he came back with the Giants in the polo grounds, they had a night for him because people loved Willie Mays. And here, here's the thing. I don't know that we do that anymore or that we feel the same way. But but you can tell me because the next guy has is sort of a two-headed coin. 1978, 3,000-hit club member, Pete Rose. I, m- I might take a few seconds to stand, but it would be an enthusiastic ovation. Okay, I, th- I think that's fair. It's five years since 1973. We may not be over it. The, the funny thing is that when Pete Rose does come back after his 3,000th hit, which, by the way, he was on his way to 3,000 hits. He stopped off at Shea Stadium. I think it may have even been on the same road trip where he got the 3,000th hit in Montreal. And he hits three home runs against the Mets, which actually kind of softened the ground for what was to come because now he's sort of, you can't stay mad at Pete Rose forever was the feeling. He comes back in July. And he's in the middle of a historic hitting streak, which will reach 44 in the night that he's in New York during that series. He sets what is the modern record. We didn't know about the the gambling. We, we didn't know a lot about Pete Rose in 1978. But, but one thing we do know is that he still had a bunch of years to go. Pete Rose, of course, holds the, uh, the hit king record. He's the hit king, according to him. 4,256 hits. Number 4247 was against the Mets in that crazy Eric Davis-Ray Knight fight game because he was the player manager. So there was a lot of life left in Pete Rose back then. So everybody I've mentioned here, by the way, from Aaron up to this guy, played at both the Polo Grounds and Shea Stadium as an opponent. Lou Brock. Lou Brock, better known for stealing bases, but passed 3,000 his last year and actually got his last hit at Shea Stadium. I would raise my Brock umbrella and give him a enthusiastic standing ovation. It was a new concept where you put an umbrella, the top of an umbrella on your head. So it was like a crown 
which contained a umbrella top, not the muffin top from Seinfeld, but the umbrella top. Yeah, Lou Brock was an innovator. And the funny thing is, maybe not that funny to Ed Cranepool, Lou Brock was given a night at Shea Stadium. Unfortunately, there's nobody there because there was never anybody there in 1979. And this is the same week that Ed Cranepool's career is ending. And they don't give Ed Cranepool a night. And that would have to come years later. And, you know, Ed took it in stride. I want to interject here. There was no interleague play in the 1970s and the 1980s. So we missed a lot of these players who got to 3,000 hits. So I'm just going to name check them real quickly if you want to throw in any thoughts. But the Mets never played them. Not in the regular season, not in the postseason. Al Kaline, Carl Yastrzemski, Rod Carew, Robin Yount, George Brett, Paul Molitor. They all played at Shea Stadium against the Yankees, but we weren't there. And these are players that we only knew from the All-Star game, maybe from the playoffs, unless we didn't tell anybody and put on a Yankee game. They feel legendary, even though they don't feel immediate to us. There's a mystique to them. As as I was doing this, I was thinking, man, I really loved Rod Carew, for example. And how often did I see Rod Carew, other than, as you say, in an All-Star game? in a couple of playoffs with the Twins and later the Angels. And I think somehow I hold them in higher esteem because I saw them so rarely as opposed to the idea of, oh, maybe Carl Yastrzemski will come in with the Red Sox uh, you know, next month. But we're, we're going to go now to a somewhat more modern era and a player who we know as a Met opponent and a psychic rival in the sense of, oh, he plays for them. But at the time, he was a twin. It was 1993. He went to his hometown team. Dave Winfield. Doesn't do a thing for me. Okay. Dave Winfield does not do a thing for Jeff. And Dave Winfield was on his way, I think, when we talked about Miguel Cabrera, on his way to one of those, he's going to kill us nationally careers, back when maybe when we, we could have dealt with that as, well, he's an opponent and we'll put up with it. But he went off to take money from the Yankees. The next guy, like Willie Mays, and like one other guy on our list here, played for the Mets. In fact, by the time he got his 3,000 hit, he was done as a Met. But he had a long career. Uh, you might have seen him in your neck of the woods. Eddie Murray, 1995. A brief standing ovation, I think. Eddie Murray was one of those guys, and I think there are a couple more as we go along here, who you never quite realized just how good he was as he was putting up the numbers. But I think he's also more in that mystique arena that we were talking about until he came to the Dodgers to play against the Mets and then came to the Mets. Next guy, pure National Leaguer, but not the National League East. So it was kind of a treat to see him, I thought. Tony Gwynn, Padres, 1999. Long-standing ovation. And by the way, if you're in the San Diego Library and you're checking out a book, and for our younger listeners, a book is the internet printed out. In one of the San Diego libraries is a book about Tony Gwynn with my older son's name in it that my parents paid to have his name be put in a sticker on the book. I'm not sure how that happened, but I always think of that. Standing ovation for Tony Gwynn. I join you in your standing ovation. I join the National League Town listenership in San Diego in spirit, running off to the library to get a look at that. The next guy, actually, we did face him, but it doesn't count as 3,000 hits until much later. We faced him in 1986 in the World Series, and then he went about his merry way until the late 90s when interleague play happened, which is you know going to change the perspective probably. At this point, he's a Tampa Bay Devil Ray when he gets to 3,000 pit. But we met him not only as a Boston Red Sox, but as a New York Yankee, Wade Boggs. Polite applause. Uh, maybe I'd have some chicken, but nothing. Mo- mostly applauding his star turn on Cheers and maybe in The Simpsons. Yes. Okay, that's fair. 
when interleague play came around, uh, there was kind of the sensation of suddenly people showing up to seem to me to see some of these mystique guys, if you will. But this guy definitely fit that bill. Cal Ripken. That was 3,000 hit in 2000. Prolonged standing ovation. I have his autograph. My younger son has his autograph. And he was very nice to my older son in one of his last games where we had field box seats at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And as the game was ending, I told Eric, go down by the front row because I knew what Cal was doing as he got closer to breaking Lou Gehrig's record. After the game ended, he started in the right field corner and started signing and he kept moving, sign and move, sign and move. He got to my son who was a lot littler than he is now. And he bent down, shook his hand, and signed his autograph. I've always appreciated that. So I'm a big fan of Cal. Cal Sr., great coach. Billy does a good job on MLB Network. Big fan of the Ripkins. Long-standing ovation for Cal Ripken Jr. For that story alone, I would give him a long-standing ovation. Even though he beat the Mets a game, as I recall, first interleague game at Camden Yards that the Mets played. It's a nice ballpark, and it was nice to be there. It was not nice to lose that game, but 11 hits against the Mets in his career out of 3,105. We can't hold it against Cal. This guy was a Met already on his way to 3,000 hits. Didn't have the neatest of departures from the Mets, but I think uh, he's still considered uh, a beloved figure. Ricky Anderson, last day of 2001, he gets his 3,000th hit and he plays a couple more years. Actually, never came back to Shea after that, but let's say he did. How do you greet Ricky Henderson in the 3,000 hit club? I played poker with him and give him a long standing ovation. That is the accurate way to go about things, I think. The next guy, 2005, I think was in that category of, gee, I didn't realize just how many hits he had until he suddenly had 3,000. And unfortunately, I don't think this is the first thing people are going to think of when they think of Rafael Palmero. But during that brief segment of time between Rafael Palmero getting his 3,000th hit for the Baltimore Orioles and him testing positive after wagging a finger, congressional hearings that he never did, steroids. Uh, let's just say he's Rafael Palmero, member of the 3,000 hit club. How do you greet him? Politely. Rafael Palmero could have been a big part of our lives because he started with the Chicago Cubs back when the Chicago Cubs were in the National League East. And he got his first hit against us, one of the first hits of his career on the night we clinched the 1986 division against those Cubs. He went off to have an American League career and we sort of lost track of him. Uh, a guy we didn't lose track of because he was in the National League with one team his entire career. And he has something in common with us. He's Long Island's own Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio and Astro from 1988 to 2007 got the second hit of his career against the Mets in 88, got the 3,047th hit of his career uh, as it was ending in September 2007. How excited are you to greet Craig Biggio, member of the 3,000 Hit Club? Always liked him. Long Island's own, as you said. I would give him a, a nice standing ovation. I think an overriding factor here is our respect and love for baseball lore and baseball history. And Biggio, certainly a great player. That's what it felt like his final weekend in New York a few weeks before that season ended. I was at a Mets Astros game. I think they had given him some sort of plaque or something before the game. They certainly acknowledged it was his final game in New York and he got a nice ovation. I was a part of it. The next guy we're probably not that generous about. In 2011, he got his 3,000th hit. He would go on to have 131 hits against the Mets in the regular season. 
He got more than that uh, when you throw in the, the 2000 World Series. A shortstop for the New York American League team who used to have a piece in the Marlins. I think you know who I'm talking about. Get on with the game already. I think we're all entitled to our own blackout rule of saying, you know what? Sportsmanship only goes so far. This guy has benefited from our pitching largesse. Not only get on with the game already, but I think there would be an extra long line for the bathroom while that was taking place, because I'm sure others feel the same way. Well, the, the problem with, with honoring this guy was that if he was just in a house full of Mets fans, it might be, well, all right, we should acknowledge it. But if he was here to play the Mets, then the crowd is divided to a great degree, and we don't want to give those people anything. So, sorry, pal. The next guy, same team when he got his 3,000 hit in 2015. Not his entire career, not the same relationship, but a very uh, interesting character, shall we say. Alex Rodriguez. Rather talk about Hot Rod Keneal than A-Rod. That's fair. Yeah, I think if he had, you know, we, we didn't see him until he played for Texas. In fact, he and Palmero both had their last hits against the Mets in the same series, the one where Jose Reyes was elevated to the major leagues in 2003 through the magic of interleague play. Otherwise, he was the guy from Seattle who was supposed to sign with us, but either wanted a tent and 24 plus one treatment, or that was just a dodge by Steve Phillips. Anyway, he went on to a career with another team. I have no interest at all in any media with the ball slapper. Okay, well, we're going to keep the ball in our glove, but we, we have to acknowledge a player who also played for the same team as the last two guys we talked about, but that's not really his defining identity, nor really was it when he was a Marlin, where he got his 3,000th hit. He was a big deal in Seattle. He's a big deal in Japan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in 2016 to the 3,000 hit club, Ichiro Suzuki. I don't know if, he, if we intersected with him that often. I would still give him a, a polite standing ovation. Well, as far as being a Met opponent is concerned, he had 42 hits against the Mets. Interleague play with Seattle brought him into our midst with a, at, at hit number 527. In fact, I was at the game where he first played at Shea. And his last hit against the Mets, he was up to 3,079 because although uh, he is a Mariner, I think in the public consciousness, he played quite a few years for the Marlins toward the end of his career. A guy who had a longer than I remembered National League career, but really worked the totals up in the American League uh, as we come up to contemporary here. Adrian Beltre, Texas Rangers, 2017, joined the 3,000 hit club. I have no opinion about him. Isn't that interesting? I didn't have that much of an opinion either until very late in his career. In fact, he came into City Field with the Rangers in August of 2017, about a week and a half after he got his 3,000th hit. And I remember, you know what? I meant to stand up and give him a nice ovation on his first at bat, but they didn't make a big deal about it. I was having a nice conversation when he was hitting. I'm like, that's right. Adrian Belcher has 3,000 hits. Hell of a glove and a, obviously a great hitter. And, you know, I guess if you were a Rangers fan, a Dodgers fan, a Mariners fan, maybe a Red Sox fan through the years, you would have a real feel for this guy or if he was beating you up. But Beltre did most of his damage before we realized who Adrian Beltre was when he was a kid with the Dodgers. So nice long career. I think I'd give him a if I had to do all over again, Jeff, I think I'd give him a nice round of applause. But I just forgot. We we already got to Cabrera. So we, we'll finish up with a player who, uh, what do you know, we are going to see. We saw him this week, at least in the dugout in St. Louis. And we're going to see him in a couple of weeks at City Field. So I don't have to really do 
the hypothetical here, except to say, let's say that you, Jeff, were coming up to New York in the middle of May to see the St. Louis Cardinals play the New York Mets. In the lineup, most likely as a designated hitter, is Albert Pujols, who joined the 3,000 Hit Club when he was with the Angels in 2018, but was a Cardinal for a million years, and we certainly saw him plenty. It's hard to embrace any of the Cardinals, but I think I would still give him a standing ovation. I might be the only one, or you might be standing next to me, and perhaps some of the quote-unquote greatest fans in baseball will be in the ballpark standing too, probably sobbing, but I would give Pujols a standing ovation. I would definitely join you in that. Some, somehow Pujols, for me, transcends the idea of the Cardinals as this revolting enterprise, which I think we're entitled to that opinion, too. I think the Cardinals right now have three players who are very important in their modern history, all in their last year. And in the abstract, I can garner respect and admiration for what they've done. But seeing them on the screen, at least one of them, drove me to question my, my own values because Javier Molina, who I... You know, I believe has been a great catcher and a great major league ball player. It's like, oh my God, I hate that guy. Hit the home run against us in 2006. What else needs to be said? The guy he was catching at the end of that game that night, Adam Wainwright, I don't get quite as virulent about, but thank you. Have a nice life. Pujols is different though to me. I mean, Pujols, along with Cabrera, has been the hitter in baseball for two decades. And Pujols came out of the gate that way. And yeah, he, he killed the Mets. He killed everybody. And then he killed the Angels by getting older, unfortunately for them. But he was still putting up numbers, got to 3,000 hits past Willie Mays on the, the home run list, which kind of broke my heart a little bit. But it, it didn't bother me that it was Pujols because he is and has been such a great hitter. So, yeah, except for a couple of guys we share a uh, disdain for, I'm comfortable getting up, applauding, being being a big Mets fan about then, of course, you know, wouldn't come to strike out. If you think we had any misses, if we were overly enthusiastic about somebody, if we were too tepid about somebody, let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. And before you leave, if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You know, the Pacific is as blue in my dreams as the color of the San Diego Padres jersey when they weren't wearing brown. That was unprompted, folks. I wrote this Shawshank reference. Greg hit it out of the park like Pete Alonzo. We need your help. We're trying to be a little different, but there are a lot of Mets podcasts, so your tangible input will help us attract other listeners and advertisers. We certainly appreciate your listening, but now we're asking you to do a little more and rate and subscribe and review us. Uh, we love talking to each other, but we love talking to you too. So and anything you can do to help spread the word, we really do appreciate it. And we do tip our cap to you, our listener. So that'll do it for this episode. We Again, thank you for listening. I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022, music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Bandcamp.